Good morning, everyone. Glad we can be together this morning. Uh, last Sunday, we had our second outdoor worship gathering, and although it was pretty humid and some of our kids were a bit unhappy, I'm grateful for the face-to-face -face interaction and time that we got to spend together worshiping, commissioning new mission partners, and celebrating mothers and mother figures in our lives. We're on the second week of our sermon series on calling. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Pastor Ted talked about how we have a good God who calls us to do good works. And for the next several weeks, we'll be examining the lives of biblical characters and how God called them and how they responded to his call. This message series reminds me of my call to ministry, vocational ministry in the church. A couple of decades ago, I was a senior in college and about to graduate with a business degree and seriously considering spending a year in East Asia as a missionary. Being a woman, I thought the missions field was where I could serve and use my gifts because of missionary biographies I read and really just from what I observed from the women around me. At the time, the women I saw who worked in the local church they mainly held administrative roles or children's director roles. Well, I had served as a youth counselor at camp almost every summer while I was in college, and I felt the spirit leading me to serve with youth as I started spending more time with them. My discernment led to looking into teaching English to youth overseas, but my parents were pretty unhappy about this option. Well, one day after service, when I was visiting home from college and almost about to graduate, the English pastor, who happens to be an ECC pastor now, he asked me in front of my mom if I would consider being a youth intern at the church because he saw what God was doing in my heart as I ministered to youth. His invitation was really the first time I, as a woman, actually thought my gifts my passions and my potential call to ministry had a place in the local church. And as you can guess, I uh, applied and I went on staff right after I graduated from college and I was in youth ministry for four and a half years before going to Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. Invitation is so powerful. It can open the doors for people to consider and pray about something that could potentially lead them on another path different from the norm or what society or culture would prescribe. This morning, we're going to look at four aspects of the life of King David and how our good God called him in various ways to do good work. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you call us your very own that you first call us your children. Thank you for choosing us. And as we hear your word this morning and we look at the character of David, will you move in our hearts, stir in our hearts a vision, a calling that you have on our lives so that we can take that next faithful step as we live life with you, Lord. Bless our time together. Amen. Well, David was the youngest of eight sons. His father was Jesse from the tribe of Judah, 
and the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz. He's part of Jesus's lineage, as we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and preordained to be in this position as king. What many of us know about the story of David is that he was the unlikely hero, the unlikely king. He was even his father Jesse's last choice. To give more context, Samuel was a prophet who was called by God, and that's a whole other amazing story that we'll have to save for another time. But Samuel was called to find the next king and anoint him. The current king was Saul, who was not following God's instruction, and he lost favor with God because of his disobedience. So there was a need for a king and a leader who would follow God's ways. Let's look at our first passage today. 1 Samuel chapter 16. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. In this passage, we see that God passes over the taller and more impressive older brothers and chooses the youngest and smallest brother. David, the unlikely king, the unlikely hero. What does this passage tell us about how God chooses? People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is more concerned with our character and our inner life. In the Hebrew world, the heart is the center of intellectual, ethical, moral, and religious consciousness. And from a human standpoint, we don't get to see what's happening in people's hearts. Even a godly man like Samuel couldn't help but judge by outward appearance. But God sees our hearts. And when we turn to him for wisdom, we can examine our own hearts through ref reflection, meditation, and prayer. God calls us to examine our hearts, not our abilities or outward talents or skills. 
abilities, talents, and skills are important considerations, but they aren't the crux of how we decide whether we are to do the good work of God. And it's certainly not how God always calls people to do his work. God sees his people through a lens of grace, not by human reason or logic. There's a pastor that I see every now and then, and he's known me since I was a a teenager. And every time he sees me without fail, he says, Grace, I would have never thought you would be where you are now. And though it's expected every time, it's also a little awkward because, well, because it happens every time, um, but also because there's a shared acknowledgement that as a teenager, I was not on the outside, um, what, it, what appeared to be on this path to being a follower of Christ. But as I look back, I remember my heart as a teenager wanting so badly to know Christ and to follow him, but struggling and wrestling with how to do that in the midst of some really challenging circumstances in life. On the outside, I appear to be this troubled teenager, but on the inside, my heart was longing for God to rescue me from my circumstances. Thank goodness, right, that the Lord does not look at the same things that people look at. I'm comforted and relieved to know that God sees people through a different lens, one that surpasses human reason and logic. If you feel misunderstood, overlooked, invisible, know that God notices you. He sees your heart. He sees your intention and he sees your motivations. And I wanna encourage us all to look at ourselves through this same lens of grace. We must be careful to not disqualify ourselves because of past mistakes or feeling like we don't measure up or fit certain molds. He desires our hearts and our willingness to serve and he will give us the skills and the abilities We need to do his good work. At the end of this passage, we see that the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. The spirit of God empowered him for the specific work that the Lord had called him to do, to be the godly king of Israel. When we allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and we work in cooperation and partnership with the Spirit, we will have success in the work that He calls us to do. If you're a parent or if you grew up attending Sunday school as a child, you've read or heard the story of David and Goliath a bajillion times. Well, we're going to read a section of it in our next passage today. 1 Samuel chapter 17. King Saul replied to David, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he, Goliath, has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, 
and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. When David was a shepherd tending to sheep, God used his skills for a kingdom purpose. Who knew that sheep keeping could have anything to do with preparation to become a king? Killing lions and bears to, protecting, um, to protect a herd of sheep certainly prepares one to fight in countless battles in order to protect and lead entire, an entire people and nation of God. It reminds me of how Jesus called some of his disciples who were fishermen and prepared them to share the gospel to many to be fishers of men. God is preparing us now to live fully into our calling. In fact, he has been preparing us throughout our lives, even if we aren't able to see the full picture now. If your job seems pointless or meaningless, insignificant or even directionless, know that your current job might be preparing you for something God has for you in the future. There's meaning and purpose and significance in even the most ordinary and mundane tasks like sheep keeping in ancient times. All work is sacred and not limited to worship and prayer. The work that I do as a pastor is not more sacred than the work that my neighbor does at home with her kids or the work that my friend does in the office. In her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, which we give out to all our new mission partners and also won Book of the Year by Christianity Today in 2018. Author Tish Warren writes, a sign hangs on the wall in a new monastic Christian community house. Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. I was and remain a Christian who loves for revolution, for things to be made new and whole in beautiful and big ways. But what I am slowly seeing is that you can't get to the revolution without learning to do the dishes. This quote hit home for me. I've shared before how much of a struggle doing dishes was for me and how it's become symbolic. When I do dishes now, I'm reminded of how important it is for me to learn to do the things that feel mind-numbing for me. Doing the dishes is sacred work. It's transformative work that the Spirit of God is doing in me. So I want to encourage us today to take a look at what seems like ordinary, mundane, insignificant work in our lives, whether it be tasks at home or a job that you're feeling like you just need to get out of. How might this work right now be preparing you to live out a calling on your life in the next season. 
Perhaps things have plateaued in your marriage and you wonder what this next season in marriages will look like after being together for a number of years. Maybe God's calling you to be marriage mentors in our new marriage mentoring ministry at Access. If you're a teenager and struggling with depression or anxiety or stress, perhaps God will one day call you to serve as a youth pastor or become a clinical psychologist and help at-risk teens. When we used to live in LA, we had a friend who was a corporate lawyer and felt like it was about time that she stretch her faith and decide she decided to leave her job um, and use her skills to work at a new nonprofit in New York called Restore, whose mission is to help end sex trafficking in New York and help survivors transition in life by providing them with a safe home and a job. It's now grown a lot and well-established and she helped make that happen. Whatever you're doing now, if you're questioning the meaning or significance of it, be encouraged that God might be preparing you for something ahead, something that you are, you are called to do for his kingdom purposes. David was known as a man after God's own heart for many reasons. And one of them is how he had this deep connection and relationship with God. Now, don't get me wrong. He was far from perfect. He committed adultery, murder. He struggled with being a father and committed many other sins against God. And we'll spend some time talking about those sins later this summer when we talk about failures in scripture. But we see in First and Second Samuel, and especially in the book of Psalms, that David had this deep connection with God through his songs of praise, confession, repentance, thanksgiving, and lament, especially lament. We can learn from the character of David that we are called to lament to engage in the suffering and pain in our hearts and in this world. David, while trying to escape from the hands of King Saul, who eventually became immensely jealous of him to a point of wanting to kill him, David wrote many songs of lament as he lived in fear, loneliness, anger, and confusion. Here's one of them. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Of the 150 Psalms in scripture, 73 of them are attributed to David and 42 of them are laments. We even have a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations, but we often skip over lament prayers. But this past year during the pandemic, we have collectively learned to face pain and suffering like never before. And because we are learning to collectively engage in our suffering and others' suffering 
especially as we pursue racial justice, we are learning to engage with God in a deeper way than before. As Christians in America, we oftentimes don't include lament in our worship and prayers. In his book, Prophetic Lament, Dr. Soong Chan Ra, professor of evangelism at Fuller Seminary, he describes that while lament is in 40% of our Psalms, it's only in 19% of the Presbyterian hymnal and 13% of the Baptist hymnal. When we sing worship songs, you might notice the letters CCLI at the bottom of the screen. It stands for Christian Copyright Licensing International, and it gives us and other churches permission to sing contemporary worship songs. In the CCLI Top 100 list in 2012, only five songs would be considered a lament. Dr. Soong Chan Ra writes, to only have a theology of celebration at the cost of the theology of suffering is incomplete. The intersection of the two threads provides the opportunity to engage in the fullness of the gospel message. Lament and praise must go hand in hand. You see, it's only in our lament and our ability to face the reality of our pain and suffering when we can receive God's comfort and hope for us. It's only in our lament when we can say that the status quo is not okay and speak up for the marginalized and the oppressed. The practice of lament gives us the eyes to see the needs around us, even if our own lives seem perfectly okay. Our lament is not just about our individual selves and our individual lives. Many of the Psalms are communal laments and the book of Lamentations is largely spoken from a communal voice. We, as a people of God, are called to lament, to engage in the suffering and pain in our hearts and in this world. Only then will we be in a place where we can acknowledge there are things in our life and in this world that we cannot control, that we cannot change on our own without a rescuer, a redeemer, a mighty God. If you're unsure how to engage in the practice of lament, we have an access lament guide on our website that you can download. For me, I need to listen to music in order to turn towards my emotions and enter into that space. And if you'd like some song recommendations to help with lament, you can email me. I'm happy to send those to you. You can also go to our webpage to download the Lament Guide. Lastly, just as our good God calls us to do good work, we are also called to fight the good fight of faith. As I was studying David's life, the majority of it told in 1st and 2nd Samuel, his passion and following and obeying God, relying on him for strength and protection, it was evident in the first part of his life. But later in life, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered because Bathsheba became pregnant as a result of the affair, 
And although he eventually confessed his sin when confronted by Nathan the prophet, David went on this downward spiral of becoming complacent, apathetic, and passive, especially as a father. By midlife, he was no longer living as the David who bravely killed Goliath when everyone doubted him, or the David who over and over again won battles against surrounding enemies that eventually secured the future of the people of Israel. I am reminded that although our failure is never final, we are called to fight the good fight of faith until we take our last breath. First Timothy chapter six says, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Ancient writers often used athletic competition images for moral or intellectual battles like this one. Knowing we have various temptations in this world as believers, Paul reminds Timothy of the struggles that come with being a Christian. We are certainly not free from the struggles between flesh and, blood, and, flesh and spirit, but we are called to live our life on earth as kingdom-minded people who already know what eternal life with Jesus is like. It takes discipline to have this eternal life kingdom-minded mindset and daily practice to develop and strengthen our faith in God to live it out on a daily basis. What is testing your faith today? Might be discerning a job or your future. Might be a difficult marriage or or parenting struggles. Perhaps it's your deteriorating health or an unreconciled relationship with a friend or family member. These and so much more are all of life's challenges that none of us can ever avoid. And that's why Paul describes to Timothy that it's a fight, but it's a good one that's worth fighting for. We are to remember why we decided to follow Jesus in the first place in the presence of all the witnesses when we were baptized and to pursue and to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. This is who we are as a people of God. And this is how we're called to live. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to fight the good fight of faith so that we might finish well. We ask, Lord, that we would live lives that would be worthy of this calling. Lord, bless us now as we end our service together. Lead us and guide us. Lead us towards you and give us wisdom as we examine our hearts to know where you are calling us next. 
We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Loving God, through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity. In Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus, amen.